Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy. As always, let me begin by saying thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me. And today, my very special guest, uh, Salvador Hernandez, as uh, he likes to be referred to as Sal. Um, such an interesting individual. Uh, I got an opportunity to meet Sal at the... Uh, American Health Lawyer Association Fraud uh, and Compliance uh, Symposium, uh, where I was asked to speak, and then I got a chance to um, sit into a lot of different sessions. And Sal was uh, on a panel with uh, uh, an AUSA who I happen to know from here in Georgia, and we just got to talking uh, after the uh, session and. I thought his background and and given what he's currently doing, he would make such a a fascinating guest uh, for all of our listeners uh, that you know I I really pestered him until he uh, caved and he said, "Fine, I'll do your show." So Sal is a senior compliance and ethic advisor, uh, ethics advisor with uh, Hush Blackwell. Uh, he is actually based out of St. Louis, and I'll make sure if you have any uh, needs for his or his firm's services that I'll get a link in the uh, episode description uh, along with his contact information if you uh, need to get in touch with him. But here's what's so fascinating about Sal. He is a former senior executive with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, Sal was with the FBI for uh, more than 25 years, and he, you know, we were talking just briefly before the show, you know, he and I are cut from a different cloth, as a lot of my listeners are. We come from a different era in healthcare, dating back to the late 80s and for me into the 90s, um, where we had to rise through the ranks at the organizations, or in Sal's case, with the um uh, government agency that he was with. Uh, and he rose from special agent to executive level positions at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. He was at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City and the FBI's Los Angeles field office. Uh, at the FBI headquarters, as a deputy assistant director in a criminal investigative division, he had oversight responsibilities for the FBI's financial crimes and public corruption programs. And then in Los Angeles, he held the title of assistant director and served as the office's chief executive with the responsibility for the work of more than 1,300 FBI employees. I can only imagine that must have been like herding cats at times. Um, but again, you know, he was charged with carrying out the FBI's criminal counterterrorism and national foreign intelligence responsibilities, which means he was the man. 
Uh, Sal has an extensive career with the FBI. Uh, he has an extensive background in criminal prosecutions, uh, a tremendous wealth of experience and knowledge in the healthcare sector. And it is such a privilege for me to be able to continue to bring on incredible healthcare professionals with such unbelievable backgrounds like Sal Hernandez. So with that said, Sal, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. It's such a pleasure to hang out with you today. Well, thank you, Sean, and thanks for the very generous introduction. And, and for your listeners, you didn't pester me that much to, to join you today. I was happy to be part of it. I've listened to a few of the, the podcasts, and I think you're providing a really valuable service to your listeners. So happy to be here. Thank you so much. So, you know, we have we have about five topics that I'd like for us to be able to cover today. And, you know, as everybody knows, um, you know, our show is unscripted. Uh, you know, Sal and I came up with, um, and really Sal did, uh, Sal came up with what he felt were really critical topics of discussion. And I agreed with every single one of them. And, you know, I, we're going to have a conversation and uh, I, I hope y'all will sit back with your coffee, your water, your soda, or whatever your beverage of choice is, and you'll enjoy this podcast. So, now, I want to kick off by talking about something to me that I've talked about on my podcast in the past, which is very important, which is the DOJ's Corporate Crime and Compliance Initiative. Um, this is something that really came into focus in 2018. There were some revisions in 2019, and then in 2020, uh, uh, we had more. And I really look at this, this initiative, if you will, as sort of like a prosecutor's playbook. Um, so if you could, you know, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background of where this initiative came from, where we are now, and where you think we're headed? Sure, Sean. And I know your audience is primarily interested in the health care law implications of, of what's happening out there, what's happening in the regulatory landscape at, at the department and maybe the SEC. But I think there's value right. in walking back to how we got where we are now. And, and the origins of this really come from the change in administrations more than anything else. Not surprisingly, when the new administration um, came into place here a couple of years ago, the Biden administration, there was a, a belief that corporate enforcement, corporate criminal enforcement, and to an extent civil enforcement had fallen off during the past administration. And so new Attorney General Merrick Garland um, assumes his position, new Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco takes her position. And not too long after that, they announced, and this is October of 2021, they announced a new corporate crime enforcement initiative. And the world took note. There was a lot of thought leadership written by law firms, frankly, and a lot of other experts out there about what this, what this meant and what this means for corporate America. Um, but essentially, what Lisa Monaco announced in October of 21 was that, and some of your listeners will remember this, the Yates memo, the Sally Quillen Yates memo of 2015, which talked about individual liability uh, rather than strictly entity liability, uh, was going to be kind of reactivated. It had fallen away during the Trump administration years, but that was going to be reactivated. And what they were going to add to that is that just uh, in addition to those that were substantially involved in whatever criminal activity you were reporting, this is to receive cooperation credit, you must reveal everybody that might have been involved. So that was the first prong. They were going to focus on individual liability. They were, 
they were going to go back to that. They also said through the pronouncements that to the extent that monitorships had been disfavored in the past administration, they would no longer be disfavored. So the expectation was that you would see more monitorships. And then um, perhaps most importantly, there was going to be a different view of prior misconduct, a taking into account of all prior misconduct. This is, again, this is all to the, in the effort to gain cooperation credit if you're coming forward. And essentially the, the department is saying, we want to find those bad actors, those that are our repeat offenders, whether it's a civil, regulatory, criminal matter in the past, we're going to take into account all of that when we gauge your cooperation and frankly gauge how we're going to charge um, if we're in discussions with you before that. So to, to get all that accomplished, the department hired a number of seasoned compliance people into high level positions. Ken Polite, that we've talked about, Sean, is the yeah. assistant attorney general for the criminal division, a former U.S. attorney, but maybe more importantly, a former compliance officer. They That's brought right. in the chief of the fraud section now was a former compliance officer at Hewlett Packard. The chief of their specialized unit for compliance and ethics is a data analytics expert and a former global compliance officer for AB InBev. And then they brought in a bunch of FBI agents embedded them into the department to focus on this, this new aggressive initiative. So they're putting their mouth, uh, they're putting their money where their mouth is. And I think sending a message to corporate America that if you're in negotiations with us at some point, we have people here that know what this looks like. We know what a good compliance program looks like. Uh, you won't be able to pull the wool over our eyes as you might have in the past because we have former compliance professionals that can evaluate your program. So that was the beginning of it. And just to take one more minute, that's October of 2021. Throughout the course of 2022, there are pronouncements by Mr. Garland himself, the Attorney General, additional pronouncements by Lisa Monaco, the Deputy, and by Ken Polite, where they basically reinforce all of this, leading up to a couple of press conferences that uh, Lisa Monaco and Ken Polite held in September, where they talked about these things again, um, and said that they now will add to that their expectation that companies will incentivize and disincentivize certain behaviors through the use of compensation plans. So adding to that now, probably the biggest thing that was added toward the end of last year was that um, they expect companies to hold executives to account, even members of the board, if that's the case, by moving compensation away from them, clawing it back if that's the case. That's, I think, where we are as a general matter in terms of the, um, the initiative itself. We can talk more about what's happened in the way of prosecution, but I think that sets the table pretty well. No, I think you did a great job of, uh, of, of setting, you know, to your, to, to use your phrase, setting the table, uh, for us to be able to begin serving up, you know, the meal. Mm -hmm. Um, look, I, I, I don't think anybody would agree that, you know, the level of enforcement, the level of regulatory oversight is always dependent on who's in control, right? Who's in the white house, who's controlling the Senate. Who's controlling the Congress? And this is not a political statement. This is a statement of fact. Um, you know, when you have a Republican White House or you have a Republican Congress, you tend to find a rollback in what they consider to be overbearing regulations, right? Not that they're trying to allow people to get away with more, but what they're trying to do is loosen the restrictions that may have been put around, you know, they're, they're, you know, tying their hands together, if you will, 
um, in all different sectors, but especially in healthcare, right? Because healthcare is such a unique animal. And when you have a Democratic White House or you have a Democratic, you know, Congress, you tend to see more regulations, more regulatory control. That's just always been the way that it's it, it's it's appeared. I mean, would you would you agree? Do you have any disagreement on that? No, I think that's a fair assessment, Sean. The pendulum swings back and forth. And the reason it swings back yeah. and forth is there is the the belief when I think when administrations change that it has swung too far the other way. So that it has to swing this way. And to get back to where they think the center is it in the in the perception of the next administration, the belief is that it has swung too far the other way. So there's this constant back yeah. and forth. And I think you're making the point. Uh, very well that generally Republican administrations tend to, to be friendlier toward business. They believe that smaller government is good for business, that fewer restrictions right. allow businesses to expand and grow and create more jobs and all of those things. I don't think there's anything negative to be associated with it. I don't think it has anything to do with sure. a greater acceptance of criminal behavior. It's just the nature of Republican and Democratic administrations. So, yeah, I think that's very fair. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I miss the days of the moderates, the centrists, if you will. Um, I, I feel like today on both sides of the aisle, you have such extreme views that I, I don't know what it's going to take to get us back to the middle. But something that you said, which is such a profound statement, um, Kenneth Polite is, I think, such an incredible asset to the criminal division at the Department of Justice because of his background, because of him being a former corporate compliance officer, he understands the regulatory landscape. I'm not talking about it from a legal perspective. I'm talking about the nuts and bolts of compliance. What, what makes an effective compliance program um, you know, you talked about the Yates memo, which is so important, right? Because when 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 the Yates memo came out in 2015, you know, it talked about corporate misbehavior. But the thing that people like myself were trying to educate, you know, uh, uh, business leaders on, <coughs> excuse me, was that corporations don't misbehave. OK, don't let the title of this document fool you. Corporations don't misbehave. It's the individuals charged with running these organizations that misbehave. And if you're going to be on a board of directors, you can't put your head in the sand like an ostrich and believe that, you know, deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard for the, you know, the, the truth or the falsity of what's happening within an organization can be overlooked. Um, and, and I think that's still something that a lot of board members need to be educated on uh if you're on a healthcare board you can't bury your head in the sand and and think that you have no liability uh if something goes sideways you know what are your thoughts about that i think that's the thrust i think that was the thrust of the yates memo i think it is the thrust of the essentially reactivation of it with a little bit of an ad meaning now if you want credit for cooperation you're going to have to give us everybody's name because the belief is, and I think you could put this together with the compensation guidance that has come out, the belief is that if it hurts the pocketbooks, potentially of the people at the top, whether it's a board member or company leadership, 
there's more likely to be a change that will reflect good corporate ethics because people have something at stake. There's something in the game that wasn't there before. If it was only that corporations would enter into settlement agreements with no real exposure ultimately to, to the folks that run corporations, as you say, it's individuals that make mistakes or do things that are inappropriate. It's not companies as companies. I think the belief is that if you put something put something out there that works against interest of, of the folks that run corporations, you'll get more of a response. And I think that makes perfect sense. It seems logical to me. And I think that's why we are where we are right now. I think that's why we are to talk about another subject that I think we wanted to discuss with compliance officer and CEO certifications. Does a certification yes. ultimately mean much? Obviously, if you present something to the government, you're saying that it's truthful and that it's accurate. But the added dimension of signing a certification, I think, is to put more at stake for the individuals that sign those documents. I, I agree with you. And that was such a great lead in, Sal. Because, and, and I want to come back to something else, which is um, disclosures to the government. Because, you know, that disclosures feeds right into the very first topic, you know, that we just came off of, which is, you know, when something's going wrong. But since you, since you went to the corporate compliance officer and CEO certifications, I think this is something that is so critical. And I want compliance officers who listen to this program. So we get about 175,000 downloads of the podcast every single month, right? And we look at our demographics and I see uh, about 35% of the people that are listening to this podcast are compliance professionals. And I want them to listen to this very clearly. Compliance officer certifications is, is something that Kenneth Polite kind of floated in 2022, early on in the year. He was giving comments at uh, I, I think it was a conference in New York, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, don't hold me to that, but I think that's where it was. And when Sal and I, when we were in uh, Baltimore in September, um, Kenneth Polite and Christy Grimm were both there uh, having a panel discussion. After his talk, I had a chance to uh, get with uh, Kenneth. And, you know, he talked about compliance officer certification. And, and I got to tell you, this is something that I think is a very good thing for an organization, but it's a very bad thing for an individual if they sign something that they are not 100% confident will, will pass you know, muster with the government. So I'd love to get your thoughts on you know, whether you think these compliance officer certifications are a good thing or a bad thing. And, and really, you know, let, let's talk about the significance of these in potential criminal liabilities. Sure. In the context of the job that I took after I retired from the FBI as a compliance officer for a large, large company with billions in annual revenue and hundred, almost a hundred thousand employees at the time, I'll give you my answer. And I think I think it's a good thing. I think the benefits outweigh the risk. It'll be interesting to, to see what your listeners think about this, especially those that are compliance officers. My belief is that it gives you a better seat at the table. 
which is what compliance officers are always, I think, scrambling for. Is anybody at the leadership level in their company actually listening? Depending on where you fit in your company, you may be close to the top. You may have a CEO that wants to hear from you once a week, or you may have a CEO that has you there because he or she thinks he needs to have you there, and that's the only reason you're there. I think the idea that in, in a corporate settlement, especially where there's going to be a monitor shift, because that's where you typically will see certifications, where there's going to be a monitor, I think the idea that you, with your CEO typically, it's usually with the CEO, can say to the government, I certify that we are doing these things, puts, maybe not to phrase it this way, it sounds negative, but puts leadership on notice within your company. We really have to follow up. We have to get this right. I have to understand what, what compliance means in my company. Basically, I have to be listening to that compliance officer. I think most compliance officers value time with someone that is listening to them that can actually affect change. So my view is on the on balance, and I know this will probably scare some compliance officers because they see themselves signing on the, on the bottom line. But again, you're signing for your company and typically your CEO is signing as well. I think it's an opportunity to get that that seat at the table and to be heard. How do, how do you feel about that, Sean? I agree with you 100. percent So there's a, there's a couple of things that I would tie directly into. One, I think that compliance certification statement demonstrates even further that your organization has created a culture of compliance. Right. Number two, I look at it as the ability for the compliance officer to not only have that seat at the table, but to be able to demonstrate autonomy right right that's one of the most important functions you as a compliance officer know this as well right autonomy having the resources having the independence and the ability to be objective as to how you create policy and procedure what goes into your corporate compliance program the monitoring and the auditing of that compliance program the disciplinary actions and how they apply to all individuals within the organization, how you structure your risk assessment. I think you're right. For me as a compliance officer for, you know, organizations, I look at it and I say, I can't be the punchline. I have to have a seat at the table, but not only do I have to have a seat at the table, I've got to have a voice. And if you're only putting me here because you think you have to have me here, and you really don't want me here, then we don't have a culture of compliance. And me, as a compliance officer, I'm never going to certify the the state of our compliance program as being that which demonstrates good faith and demonstrates a culture of compliance to the government. Um, because, you know, it's my neck on the line. I mean, that, that's just my take. Yeah, it provides leverage where it's needed, and it isn't always needed, thankfully, but it provides leverage where it's needed for the compliance officer with leadership. And it's, as you've mentioned, it's consistent with the guidance that has been issued over many years by the department. You're familiar, your your audience is familiar with the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document, which was issued in, I think, 2017 and has been updated many times. And if you look yep. at the elements, the provisions of that document, and then you look at probably a templated com- uh, compliance officer certification, you're going to see the same elements. Do you have a risk assessment of any value? Do you have governance and structure? Do 
Do you have policies? Do you have oversight by senior middle management? All those things are going to be part of the certification. So to the extent that you can certify to that, you're essentially meeting the requirements or at least those things that the department yeah. would consider in evaluating any wrongdoing in your company. So it's a double win, I right. think. Yeah. But the most important aspect of that, Sal, right, is does your compliance program work in practice? That's Absolutely. the main question that you have to answer and certify to. That's right. If you think about what the ECCP starts with, the three questions, probably the most important, and it's the third question, your listeners, I'm sure, aware of this, is does it work in practice? For, you know, the second one is, yeah. is it being operated in good faith, meaning you're actually putting your money where your mouth is? Do you have resources? Those kinds of things. But ultimately, the government's going to think that most of that is up to you as a company. They're interested in ultimately, they're giving you some guidance about how to do it, but ultimately they're interested in, does your compliance program work in practice? That's essentially what you're certifying to. And if you can get your CEO to certify to that with you, I assume, I'd have to assume that that's a good thing for your company because honestly, that's a truthful statement, correct? It's the certification I, you make. I, I, I agree. I agree 100%. And here's the other thing that I would say to the CEOs, CFOs, and especially attorneys. I know we have a lot of attorneys that listen to this program as well. One of the things that Kenneth Polite shared with me is this. When he brings an organization in for discussions, when they're trying to figure out whether or not they're going to pursue any action against an organization, when they bring in the compliance officer, it's because they want to hear what the compliance officer has to say. If the attorney is jumping in and answering all of the questions because they think they're going to try to put some kind of legal spin on it, or they're going to speak in a, in, in a way that's going to satisfy, you know, the head of the criminal division, you're sorely mistaken. One of the things Kenneth shared with me was, look, if I start asking the compliance officer questions about the state of the compliance program, you know, do you have a seat at the table? Is your voice being heard? Can you explain to me why you wrote policies this way? Can you explain to me why the plan is drafted this way? And all I get is the attorney interjecting. I'm ending the interview because I'll know at that point that the compliance officer is just a figurehead. Right. That there's and no that's critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's no accountability at that point. It's it's just, you know, a legal maneuvering. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, don't think that by creating a compliance plan, you're automatically going to walk away unscathed from an investigation, you know, or an inquiry into your organization. Because if it's nothing more than a, a, a paperweight on your desk because you haven't updated it, you haven't monitored it you haven't audited it you got big problems on your hand but i i, I want to go i want to go to another topic sal if that's all right and and sure. it's about it's about disclosures to the government um there's a lot of different types of disclosures um you know there's self-disclosure protocols to the office of inspector general there's voluntary disclosures to the centers for medicare and medicaid services under ACA with the 60-day rule, which is actually kind of interesting because there's a proposal 
uh, to change the language right now to mirror that of uh, 31 USC 3729, um, which is the False Claims Act, and to mirror the definition of knowingly. And that's kind of interesting. We can come back to that one uh, or, or save that for another day. But then you have DOJ disclosures. So can you please, Sal, talk about um, DOJ's expectations and what you consider to be the pros of disclosing versus the, the downside of disclosing? Yes, this probably goes back to my experience with the government more than anything else, more than my experiences with Hush Blackwell or with um, my prior employer as a compliance officer. Obviously, the government would like to know as early as possible and would like to know as completely as possible what has happened. That's the interest of one side of this, one side of the equation. The interest of the company, the corporation, is to be able to try to manage the problem as much as possible, perhaps avoid disclosure if the, if the matter can be remedied and there isn't a mandatory disclosure requirement under some regulation. It wants to manage that and try to keep it in-house. And I, again, I'm going to give credit to people operating in good faith. Fix the problem. Let's assume fix the problem. The problem is that if you go too far as a corporation trying to manage it internally, you're working against the benefit, the credit that might come from disclosing at some point to the government. That's the equation I think you're having to figure out as legal counsel or maybe legal counsel with a compliance officer within a company. When do we disclose? Maintaining our interests as much as we can, but understanding that part of what is in our interest is to disclose potentially. That's what you're struggling with. The government would like to see it as soon as possible. My, my view is from sitting on the other side of this and now counseling clients is that when you know that there is something wrong that you're currently working on, that you can tell fairly quickly is going to be significant, is going to require probably government intervention, there's likely crime taking place. Um, you have to think seriously about disclosing, doing the minimum that you can to understand what you have as a problem. You don't want to disclose something that ultimately isn't anything, so you can do a little bit up front, but you can't wait too long and get credit. You can go without disclosing, obviously, but you'll get no credit if the government has to find out from a whistleblower or some other means that you have something that you should be reporting or you should be fixing. So I think it's very tricky. My counsel always is to take a look, see what you have. If it's clear that there's criminal activity uh, that impacts certainly on government um, dollars, if, if that's the case, I don't think you really have much choice. But if it's criminal activity generally within your, your business sector, I think you gather up what you have. You make a thoughtful disclosure, a timely disclosure. And you make as complete a disclosure as you can. And I, I also believe, we've talked about this, Sean, that government prosecutors are operating, I believe, in good faith in most instances. They will take that disclosure to mean something about who you are as a company. And will take that into account in any charging decision or any settlement agreement. Yeah, I I, I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, look, we and you're right. We we Prior to the show starting, we, we had an opportunity to talk a little bit about... Um, uh the the most the three most recent cases i've had over just the last six months and sort of you know the 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 you know my thoughts as to why the government would bring a case that ultimately wound up 
leading to full acquittals at trial uh or you know going down a road for a period of time you know it, you know expending a lot of human resources financial resources uh only to wind up having to walk away from the case because it, it for whatever reason um look there's there's good and bad people in every single industry um again i go back to i'm i'm an old school you know uh, a guy right you know I, I i grew up in the world of healthcare and politics um you know at at a, a a day and time where you know you had a different breed of people that were leading the doj that were leading the fbi the office of inspector general i mean i spent a lot of time with daniel levinson when he was the ig um and and that's not taking anything away from Christy Grimm. I think she's fantastic. Um, but you know, there are a lot of young prosecutors right now that don't have the same level of experience. Uh, they may only prosecute one to two cases a year. And, you know, when you only have one to two cases per year, you know, you sometimes don't know what you don't know. Uh, I think there's a lot of good intent, you know, good, a lot of good intentioned people at the Department of Justice, uh, at the FBI, at the OIG. Uh, and I and I would chalk that up to those who are career civil servants, right? Those who have made a career out of working at the attorney general's office or, you know, the U.S. attorney's office or whatever it is. Uh, but you still have that younger element that I think is um you know inexperienced there's definitely some ego at play and there's some who are simply looking to extract their pound of flesh get some big wins and try to go find that big cushy job in a corner office somewhere um but i think that's a handful of people i don't think that's i don't think that's the vast majority of people at these government agencies my belief is always on both sides. My, my starting position is that the government is working in, in good faith, uh, well-intentioned, and that corporate America is as well. Problems will arise. It's unavoidable. Right. Things will have to be remedied. There may have to be some action taken by the government because some individual individuals within a company made a mistake or intentionally did something they shouldn't have done. I think all of that can be remedied by... In most cases, again, I think you have to be thoughtful. I'm certainly never telling clients to immediately call the government when you've discovered what you think is a problem. That wouldn't be prudent because you have the right to do a little bit of research. But there's a sweet spot in there. And I think if you think about it in that respect, that you're trying to do the right thing and the prosecutors are trying to do the right thing, um, the, the answer will come to you. I, I, I agree. And, and that goes back to, to that centrist you know, uh, uh, you know, position that I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a moderate right in the middle of the road. I'm a centrist. I believe that there's, you know, three sides to every story. And I think if you have civility and you have people who are smart enough to recognize that, you know, there were probably errors or flaws on both sides that you could come to a reasonable agreement and, and, you know, everybody walks away, you know, as happy as they can be in that kind of a situation. Right you know um, right 
My, my one caution would be on the disclosure side for the disclosing entity is to the extent that you disclose, disclose as completely as you can and as accurately as you can. There's nothing worse for your position to have disclosed and then the government finds out you disclosed 70%, but you didn't disclose the most important information. You held that back and you did it knowingly. That's a bad place to be in. Yeah, it's got to be it's got to be a bona fide disclosure. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things that I feel like myself and, you know, the attorneys that I'm so blessed to work with, you know, when we make a disclosure to people like, you know, Karen Black or Karen Glassman, you know, counsel at OIG, they know that it's a bona fide disclosure because we have taken the time to do a thoughtful thorough, you know, independent, objective investigation. And what we are disclosing are a complete set of facts so that we're not, you know, leaving any gaps in, in the timeframes. We're not leaving anything open to the imagination. We are closing those holes as, you know, as we move from topic to topic. So your point is, is so well taken. And I think our, our listeners will appreciate that. Last thing I want to talk about, Sal, and I think this is a great place for us to, you know, kind of, you know, uh, uh, tie it all together, is the importance of conducting uh, internal investigations. You know, what what leads to a successful internal investigation? I, as somebody who has done them myself, I have my checklist, but you're 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 an incredible wealth of knowledge and 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 bring so much with your um you know your positions at the fbi and uh with global leaders in the industry as a compliance officer what what are what are your tips your guidance that you can provide our listeners to conduct successful internal investigations Having investigated, obviously, and having led and supervised investigations over the years with the FBI, and to some extent with my private employer, I, I think about all the things that, that I learned that, that allowed me to be successful or allowed my team to be successful where I was supervising. And then I also think about the mistakes that were made. And from that, I have, I think, a, a plan that I always put in place, almost without thinking, Sean, about how internal investigations should be, should be conducted. And what I notice, what I have noticed on, on several occasions now is that companies will sometimes launch into these because they want the answer, but they're not experienced at conducting internal investigations. So they make mistakes that are potentially significant mistakes at the very outset. And, and one of the things that companies I have seen do is learn of a problem or a potential problem and go immediately to what is believed to be the source of the problem without any planning or any thought about how this investigation might proceed. So going directly to the subject of the investigation and asking the question, essentially, did you do this? Well, the answer is likely to be no, because you probably have very little to support the claim at that point. Someone has leveled an allegation or some little bit of data has pointed in this direction. And so what we always do, what I always do with clients when we're working with them on their internal investigations or we're conducting them for them because we, we do that uh, with the firm, we say, hit the pause button. Here's what you have. Let's think about the implications of what that is. First of all, is it a crime? 
is the harm being alleged? Do you have a reporting requirement? Do you have um, something less than that? Is it a civil matter? What are your plans in terms of actually getting the evidence that you need to support this or to rule it out? It's probably not going to be, if you think about it that way, the first step, go to the subject of the investigation and start asking questions. So the pause button, I think, is really important because it's our human nature and our tendency to go directly and ask the question, is this true? That's probably not the best way to proceed. We would probably never do that in federal law enforcement. Typically, it's building the case around the edges, starting to pull it together, collapsing it in on the subject or the key witnesses. And then when you're ready with all of the information that you can gather through all of these other means, then you're having those, those good subject interviews, which is probably where you're going to end up in most cases. So I would say pause, consider all of the things that this might lead to, um, consider retaining data. You might have electronic data that you need to lock down before you talk to anybody. Again, think about talking to the wrong person. That person talks to somebody else. Suddenly the data is gone that supports your investigation. Planning out and scoping your procedures, thinking about scope. Um, ultimately, and this is several steps removed, preparing for interviews. What is it you're going to try to accomplish with fact witnesses versus key witness interviews? versus interviews of subjects. How are you going to document this? How are you documenting it? What is your investigative report going to look like? Who are you going to report this to? Those are really basic considerations. And every one of those little boxes of considerations we could talk about for, for probably 30 minutes about how to do that best, because there are lots of very specific tactical things that can be discussed in, in the vein of those individual elements. But, but those are key considerations. And probably the most important one is pause. Pause before you do anything. And, and maybe consider, because it may be necessary, hiring someone else, a law firm or another entity, to do your investigation for you, because it may be important that you can show objectivity and independence, say, to a regulator or some other entity. They may not want your investigation as, as a company, they may want an independent investigation reported to you. Such a great point, because, you know, when when you're when you're the target of an investigation, right, whether it's an internal investigation or an external investigation, it's hard sometimes to be unbiased. Right. It's hard to take off the blinders because you want to believe unless you unless you you know that you've set out to commit a crime or to do something wrong. Um, you always want to believe that what you have done is correct. It's, it's, it's in line with generally accepted standards of, of practice in the world of compliance or the law, <laughs> or in the case of medicine, generally accepted standards of medicine. Um, but utilizing an independent third party to your point, whether it's a law firm or whether it's a, a, a firm that employs, you know, uh, retired FBI agents or OIG agents or those who were investigators with, you know, Mafuku or, or special investigative units with the payers. It's always going to carry, at least in my humble opinion, a little bit more weight than submitting your own internal investigative report to a regulator that's just my position on it and my experience but um i i think what you talked about sal was sound advice and i love what you said because it's not said enough pause 
pause. Take that pause. Yeah. Take that pause. Don't don't knee jerk react. You know, it, it, it's like I tell people all the time. You know, if somebody sends you something and they really irritate you and they tick you off and they make you mad, you know, the normal reaction is to do what? To respond. You write an email back to them or you write this whole letter and you wind up saying things that, you know, if cooler heads would have prevailed, you probably wouldn't have said 99% of the things that you said to inflame the situation to make it even worse. Same thing in this situation here. You got to pause to make sure that you're not giving a half-baked explanation or that you're not disclosing something beyond what really transpired. So I love your 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 takeaway, that one part of the takeaway, which is pause. I think it's very important, probably the most important thing, because during that pause, you can you can make a lot of determinations. And one of the determinations may be, do we need to take this outside? Should we? Do we have people that can conduct good interviews here or do we not? And um, I don't ever suggest to clients that every internal matter, every HR matter, companies are conducting internal investigations all the time and doing, I think, a very good job of it when the stakes are low. When the stakes are a bit higher, though, where that, that key interview, the results of that key interview are really critically important. And, and again, understand, in most cases, you don't get two chances at that key interview. Once that person is on notice, um, that person can start to create a different narrative because now she he knows what's coming and um again this goes to disclosure i think if if you've done too much of that in advance of reporting or disclosing to the government the government comes in and then says well the most important interview is this one and you've already done it we can't get the results that we might have gotten had we thought through and scripted this out and pulled in the leverage that we might need to address it with the subject all of those opportunities are gone they're missed so another Another good reason to think about when you disclose, how much are you going to do, which might actually compromise a government's investigation, which which the government wouldn't like if they believed that you had the wherewithal to report it and simply didn't because you wanted to get the answer first. That's right. Such great points. Such a great interview. Uh, I can't I can't say it enough, Sal, how appreciative I am and I know our audience and uh, listeners are for the wealth of information that you shared over the last 45 minutes with myself and all of our listeners. I, I, I love having folks like yourself on because I get to learn something new every single day from every single one of my guests. And, and for me, I'm a lifelong learner, uh, as I know so many of our listeners are, and I'm grateful for your experience. Thank you for your service to our country and for the wonderful things that you did to keep everybody safe, uh, you know, uh, during your days as a uh, FBI special agent and as an executive at the branch. Thank you, Sean. And uh, thank you to your audience as well for having me um, having me available here and speaking to you for a few minutes. Absolutely. All right. That's going to bring us to the end of this episode of The Compliance Guy. As always, thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me for a little while as I get to explore all the fascinating avenues of compliance, health law, and the intersection of business of medicine. All right. We'll be back on Monday next week with a all-new, all-star coding and compliance panel. Uh, that will happen live on Monday 12 Eastern. 
Look forward to seeing all of you there. Remember, until then, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Have a great weekend. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.